Welcome to another episode of Thick and Thin, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nithin. What's good, Nithin? What's up, man? Listen, when I was growing up, my mom always used to say, uh, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And just as Last Dance finished up, Illinois announced that Outdoor seating at restaurants and bars are open as of next week. I'm going to be at the Happy Camper Patio. It's going to be hotter and whiter than ever before. I'm pumped. We're back. Yeah, you guys are just way ahead of us, I think. I think by next week, we'll have bookstores open and sporting goods stores open. Only online <laughs> restaurants are probably are a few months out. <laughs> like so, yeah, we're, we're, uh, uh, I'm definitely jealous. We're, uh, we're a ways from that. Well, I think California, Illinois, Michigan, New York, and D.C. are like the last five locations, states slash provinces that have some, I think, still sheltered in place. Everybody else is open in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah. We're the, the laggards. Uh, you know, the one promising thing is Gavin Newsom, governor of California. He came out and said that he can see sports coming back in June in California. Which, how about that? You know, I, I like that. He, huh? I said, how he, about that? Yeah, he put a foot in the ground and said, hey, look, we're going to get sports back. Um, you know, I need my Sacramento Kings to start practicing because they still have a shot at the eighth seed with the NBA season did, uh, planning to continue. Did it feel to you that that was due to some, let's call it, monetary pressures of teams finding, you know, non-California venues to potentially play in? I, I bet that was part of it yes i think he's because also they're all getting pressure too from from trump about the on the sports piece yeah it's interesting right because it's like for every other situation they're not capitulating for the most part right california is the first state to go into shelter in place and they're still there the numbers have been good comparatively to other hotbeds or other highly populous areas in the country. So it's working in that regard. So it was interesting that they would use this, the sports events, sports leagues as where to to maybe uh, cave a little bit, right? Versus all these other issues where, like you said, you're still pretty much locked down across the board. Well, it also distracts from, if you give people this, it distracts from some of the other things, right? You That's bring true. back sports. It looks like you're at least making some kind of um, concessions to a certain extent. Um, so, hey, I'm not complaining. Just uh, excited that I think, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, but the NBA also recent past week, a lot of things are, have been coming out. A lot out. of activity. A lot of activity. And so it's all very promising for the next year. Yeah, week. so... So it looks like per Woj, the league is allowing teams to contact all of their people who are wherever they are around the world to come back essentially post, I think, June 1st. Um, there's a lot of momentum towards June, mid-June starting up um, some form of training camp with games to start basically by early to mid-July. I mean... They have the venue almost locked. It seems like it's going to be Orlando. We, we've we always thought this made the most sense when you consider just the size of that facility in addition to the presence of ESPN, right? And I'm curious to see what's going to happen because Jared Dudley's out here talking about how players can come in and out of the facility, which defeats the singular purpose of creating a bubble. But um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're going to have to test a lot. They can't test every day because it's just going to be too much, too many more tests than I think we have capacity for. But I, I, I see, I feel like it's almost a certainty. Where are you at with this now? I think it's a certainty too. My, the Jared Dudley thing scares me. And I don't know how much truth there is to that because he made, he made that comment saying, hey, look, you know, players have been talking, Silver has been saying that in this model, the players would be allowed to go in and out because I think that's something that... I think he said something about the Players Association, if we were doing this, wants that to be part of it, that players are still allowed to leave and come. But at that point, it defeats the whole purpose of this this bubble. And right. I and remember, I went on my little rant last week. I said, I don't understand why these guys can't spend two months away from people. Yeah, it's, you want them to and cut they're, off their it, You're at Disney World. You're not like in some Motel 6 in some random city. Like you have the, the best facilities. You have nice hotels. They're bringing in probably amazing food. Like how difficult can it be to just stay there for a little bit and play basketball? I know they're making it seem like they're confined to like a six by eight room with with just four channels channels on. But here's my question. If they're trying to leave the facility, where the hell are they going to go? Are they going to go to downtown Orlando? Because then this league's going to end before it starts. Um, (laughs) Then you're definitely going to like it's just a disaster, you know. And even if LeBron and AD, they take care of themselves, who's stopping Quinn Cook and freaking JaVel McGee from grinding on random people at you know, clubs in Orlando and then coming back and dapping up LeBron. There's a domino effect. And that's exactly and what we're trying to avoid. And there'll be some teams who, as a team policy, will probably say no one leaves, but other teams will be more lax, right? So across the board, it's going to be inconsistent and just, it, it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. I think, I think there could be some parameters, like you're only allowed. You've, have you been to Disney World in Orlando? You probably haven't, right? I have when I was maybe 10, 11. Oh, you have. Okay. So it's not near the city, really. It's like a little bit on the outskirts. And so yep. it's not like they're, it's right next to downtown. You have to travel a little ways. So I guess you could maybe open up the immediate surroundings, that suburbia. But that is like the shittiest place in the world. There's no way anyone would enjoy being outside of the the resort versus, you know, hanging out by the pool. I think... I think maybe the league prob- or the players probably have like a misunderstanding of what it means to be like in the bubble on the resort, um, whereas it's not sitting in a hotel room all day. It's exploring the thousands of acres of grounds that they have. You're on you're in Animal Kingdom one day. You're in Epcot the next. Like it's going to be fine. Yeah, open up the rides. Let them you know do that for for fun on the side. I don't know. Like there's pools. They, they've got idea. stuff. It's not. They've, there's pools, there's all these other things. It's only two months. We're not asking them to spend a year in purgatory. It's yeah. So, I don't know. I, I want to hear more. That was Jared Dudley, who's definitely not the... He, he likes to run his mouth, I know. So, I'm not going to take his words completely seriously, but it would be worrisome if that is how they're approaching this. He's been like the unofficial uh, spokesperson for this, just because he likes to be on Twitter. He likes to make a name for himself. He's candid. Um and he's, you know, on a prominent team that he's got a direct line to LeBron, which is all anyone cares about. So they, you know, his voice has definitely been heard. Yeah, like if he was still on the Wizards, I would feel a lot less worried about these statements. But he's 
I'm thinking he must be plugged in now that he's on the Lakers, and obviously LeBron has a lot of influence in this whole decision as well. So they don't even don't give know. the Wizards the numbers of the other people in the league. <laughs> Did you hear that oh. rumor that came out today that the Nets are going after Bradley Beal? <sighs> this is so, dude. It's like, yes, the Nets need a third star, so let's just put Beal, like, Photoshop him into a Nets jersey and write a headline, like, <laughs> could this be the future? You know, the trade package they're trying to offer essentially is built around uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, um, Karis LeVert, and Jared Allen. Those guys are fine, right? Do you see a yeah. combined, do you see a combined three All-Star games out of those three in their careers? You asked me to guess a number? Would you say over under three combined? Oh, over under three. <laughs> under. And so it's like, okay, if we, if Beal is happy to be here for the moment, why are we just going to provide a championship on a platter to Katie and Kyrie? If Durant and Kyrie win a title with Beal, I'm out. Like, you're never hearing from me again. <laughs> I'll jump. Oh, man. Seriously. And then, and then Beal comes out and says Kyrie is a... Better leader yeah. point guard than John Wall. That would break you. Meanwhile, Wall is posting his ninth straight year of workout videos without actually being on the court. Just <laughs> biding his time for the next year, for the Wolf season to come back. God. Um, all right. So, yeah, I think this is going to play out in a lot of different ways. I think they're going to put forward a more formal specific detailed proposals so a lot of the guesswork that we've had to work with is going to be answered um but you know it seems like all systems go everyone's confident i don't see what would change between now and three weeks from now when they announce this plan or two weeks from now when they announce it um other than like a surge in cases but even then there the whole idea is to prevent against uh the spread of coronavirus within a pandemic environment. So they're preparing for there to be a lot of cases around it, right? They're not just playing openly. Uh, the, the, the questions on my mind are basically, you know, how many games are going to be played in the regular season, if at all? Are they going to do a play-in tournament of any kind? Like, how do they incentivize the lottery teams to come back and give a shit? And then how long are the playoff series going to be? Those are, I think, the three things on my mind from a basketball sense. Yeah, if I'm a lottery team... That I understand if they're not so excited about coming back and, and doing this. You wouldn't. Why would you? Yeah, it's like three weeks of training and then what, a couple of weeks of meaningless games? Like, it makes no sense. Yeah. yeah. So I hope they come up with a more elegant solution. I think they're going to try to hit that 70 game minimum that. Right. Uh, right. The TV deal, I think, is kind of associated with that number, right? So. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't want the Kings going back and playing uh, just meaningless 10 games. Like, if it's either the end, full end of the regular season or not. But. Yeah. All right. So as I mentioned at the top, the last dance finally concluded. It was five weeks of bliss for me, agony for you, as you saw how the NBA hierarchy was reshaped. So we had episodes nine and ten. And to mark the special occasion, we're making thick and thin history right now. It's our first ever episode with a guest um, guest podcaster with us, our friend Akil Paul. Uh, Akil, what's up, man? What's going on, guys? Appreciate you having me on here. So what's your tie? Have you heard of Jordan? Uh, rings a bell. Um, no, but, you know, I grew up um, idolizing the guy. Just, um, you know, I started with my dad. My dad was, I think, even more of a fan than I was. He, I mean, 
crazier than I was. He used to not only record. We have each single NBA Finals game on VHS because he recorded that. But we, we recorded each game. And not only that, but he used to record us, like me and him watching the games as well. So um, wow. it yeah. starts with that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty serious. But um, yeah, man, just it, it's been uh, amazing watching him. Um, well, you know, I wish I was able to say watching him while I was growing up, but it was more, I, 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 rec- I, I recall more, more so the George, uh, the wizard years than I do the bulls, unfortunately, but yeah, you know, the highlights, the you know how it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think, you know, we kind of all talked about this previously, but we grew up in a time where, yes, we were kids when Jordan was big, but we weren't really like cognizant of everything going on. We weren't really like super deep into basketball, maybe for, more so for the second three-peat. Um, so episodes nine and 10 are really focused on concluding that second three-peat, right? It starts in the playoffs in 97, um, takes us all the way through the finals, of course, the, the famous last shot from Jordan in 98. Um, so what did you, Karthik, what did you think in terms of like, yes, the two three-peats are very poetic, um, but they were different, right? They were very different in terms of the team, the makeup around Jordan and Pippen, in terms of the level of competition, in terms of the way, the, the, the position of the league. Uh, we look at it now as almost these two symmetrical things. And in a lot of ways, they couldn't be d- more different. So what did you think about that and, and how the Bulls wrapped up that uh, sixth title? I mean, th- this second three-peat was definitely something that I remember uh, watching. The first three-peat, not at all, because, you know, we're very little at that point. So it um, – but to me, the first three-peat was much more exciting, I think, because it – in terms of the overall narrative, it's it's conquering some of those those demons he's faced with the Pistons. It's, it's getting past some of those teams of the 80s. And then kind of the three teams he beat in the finals all had their – interesting story whether it's the blazers the lakers and the the suns and barkley in his mvp year this one to me i know there's a lot of talk about how good the sonics are and how good the the jazz were but it never felt to me like they were real threats Uh, and and partly the jazz were a great team but part of it was when they beat them in 97 98 also it, it wasn't too close of a contest um and so i didn't the the sense of like how difficult it, it didn't come across to me as, you know, this as being as difficult as the first time around. Um, and so the basketball piece of this actually episodes nine and 10 to me, weren't as interesting as what we saw in the earlier episodes, but that, that was my take. But I guess the resident Jordan fan here, Akil, like what were your thoughts? Um, With the second three P compared to the first one. Yeah. Um, I do think the first three-peat was tougher when it comes to um, a competitor standpoint, like who they were facing. But as far as from a mental standpoint goes, um, the second three-peat by far was was much tougher. Um, starting with 96, you know, um, Jordan's uh, father's death, you know, he, he wanted to prove he could still win it. Um, I think that that took a toll on him mentally uh, and somehow he was able to overcome it, uh, overcome that adversity. And then 97, 98, I mean, you're playing, in my opinion, solid, a solid jazz team. Uh, um, 
seven, you have the MVP in Carl Malone. Uh, and as you guys saw in uh, one of the later episodes, Jordan, that was one of Jordan's, um, I'm trying to find the word, but one of his motivate, mo- motivating factors, I guess, yeah. uh, to try to win. And I think it, it was tougher in 98 because now you're, as a jazz player, you know what you're going up against. Um, and, and you're playing a team that's another year older and another year slower. Um, and, you know, you get another chance to try to figure them out. So in my opinion, you know, mentally, it was definitely tougher for the Bulls to, to win that second three-peat. Yeah, I mean, they're also older, right? They're a little bit older. They're more worn out. The whole idea of the last dance was behind. The the whole point of this, the whole mental gymnastics they went through was kind of Phil's doing, right? To create this, like, here's the final the final countdown type thing. But, you know, Karthik, to your point, I do, I think there's been a bit of a revisionist history on the, some of these teams, right? You look at the Jazz. Now, yes, you, you look at it now and they're like, how could a team starting a backcourt of Jeff Hornacek and, and uh, John Stockton compete against Michael Jordan, right? Like it's just the difference in athleticism, the difference in overall physicality is just is on another planet. But Utah, that playoffs went through Hakeem's Rockets, um, Duncan and Robinson Spurs and the Lakers who had four all-stars that year. Yes, Kobe was in year two, but they also had Eddie Jones. They had Nick Van Exel. They had, you know, Shaq in year six, which was, he's already been to the finals once. So it's not like he's just like a young buck in the league. And they swept him in the conference finals. So like Utah, you go back and look at that roster and you know, Stockton and Malone are two of the all-time greats. And maybe after that, it falls off. Same with the Indiana team that, was, you know, took them to seven. They're like, how could that team of this, you know, Reggie Miller was their best player. It's like, well, yeah, they were pretty deep though. I mean, Chris Mullen is a hall of famer. Rick Smith was doing well. They had the Davis, but it just feels like we we're doing this thing where we're penalizing, we're, we're putting Jordan on a pedestal for the six and O and then we're penalizing him that nobody could beat him. So it's almost like, which one is it, right? Is he great because he won against everyone or was his competition not good enough? And that's why he won against anyone. I, it feels very chicken and egg to me, you know, in the way this argument's being framed. Well, I think a lot of it, a lot of people say that he was so good. And that's, I mean, a lot of people will give you that those teams were really strong. There are a lot of defenders out there about how good the Sonics were, how good the Jazz were. But even the Jazz, you think, you're talking about Stockton and Malone also nearing the end of their primes. Sure, they played for another um, Stockton played for another four or five years. Malone played all the way to you know, 2004. Yeah, you know, I don't know if that was his last season with the Lakers. Yeah, um, but they were already nearing the end of their primes. Like, and same with you're talking about Hakeem. He was he was getting a little bit older too. He didn't have many good years left. So a lot of these guys, these weren't teams that were in the primes of their kind of in terms of their superstars. They weren't in the primes of their careers. And there's a lot to be made of that Indiana Pacers team. Because they pushed the Bulls to seven. And I think that was one of the biggest tests Jordan has has seen. The one of the rare tests he's seen during this whole run. But that Pacers team, like, let's be honest, it's not you, you mentioned Chris Mullen. Chris Mullen was at the tail end of his career on that Pacers team as well. So and is Reggie Jordan. Miller, as great as he in Reggie Miller, as great as he is, he is not a super like he's still in a tier below a lot of these other guys. So I agree I, with that, by the way. I, I think, think Reggie I, I do agree with Kill your point. Like yeah, Kill, to your point about the mental aspect of it, I think the documentary did a good job showing this too. It's, it's These guys were all older, and for Jordan, the challenge was with 
less athleticism. He's near the end of his career. Winning was a different, completely different challenge than what he had early on. So from that standpoint, I understand it. I just think that there's a lot of glorification that happens with these, with the Peyton Sonics and with the Malone Jazz that I don't think the 90s teams were that great. And I think by the mid-late 90s, because of all that talent dilution that happened with the expansion drafts, a lot of those teams got to 60 wins because they were beating up on teams like the the lower level teams. Like if you go and look at the standings from those years, the teams that were below 30 wins or even 20 wins, there's this huge lump of just really, really bad teams. So back then there's just this big disparity between the, the top teams and the ones at the bottom. And I think that's what inflated a lot of these win totals. And when we look back at it, it makes the Jazz and the Sonics all look better than they might have really been. You know what the truth is, though, about that expansion era? Yes, I know it diluted the overall talent pool, but the teams that were coming in, the expansion teams themselves, ended up being contenders in the 90s. They were good. Like Miami was good. Charlotte was good. Um, Don't forget about the Knicks. (laughs) Yeah, the Knicks were there. But what was the third expansion team? I can't remember. Um, there was three that basically joined in the late 80s. It was, it was Miami, Charlotte, and one more that I'm forgetting. But yeah, all three yeah, of them. I don't remember off the top of my head. Right. Yeah, all but I mean, there's were... still, but that doesn't change the fact that talent was getting spread thin, right? All the players in the expansion draft were from current rosters. So a lot of the teams were top heavy. They weren't deep. Uh, and so the only way you had a chance to beat Jordan was to have the top heavy, like your stars have to be really good. And it's hard to beat Jordan and Pippen in terms of what stars you have. My thing is, so the Orlando is the other one. That's so my thing is if the teams we wanted to win against the jazz in the West played the bulls and still lost, this would be remembered differently. You're right. The jazz were somewhat of a wrench in the whole wheel because they weren't a sexy team. Carl Malone is not, although he's, you know, second career points, he's never thought of on the same mantle or the same air as a Hakeem, a Shaq, a Kobe, even a Barkley to some extent. Like, yes, you may rank him higher than Barkley, but if you really had to compare peaks, you might choose Charles, right? And so if you look at the 98 team, I mentioned the Lakers. Imagine if we got a Kobe-Jordan final. Even though Kobe was young, Shaq was in his prime, that would have been given more credence, right? In 97, they beat the Rockets in the... uh conference finals and yes the Rockets were on the decline but at least you have a team with Hakeem Drexler Barkley so that's three Hall of Famers and it has you you go back and look at those rosters it has a little bit more flair but at the end of the day you know was the talent worse for the second three-peat yes it was were the hurdles internally harder for the Bulls to overcome I mean, they paid, They played, what, like 200-some games in like a matter of 18 months or something crazy like that or 20 months. I, I don't want to misquote the numbers, but it's just some insane, uh, you know, stretch of games where you're playing finals every single year. You're going to the max, and Jordan played every single game at the age of 33, 34, 35. I mean, that's tough no matter how you slice it, I think. Especially when you think about like the – you know, the injuries that pile up. Like the Warriors seemed like a foregone conclusion for a three-peat. Suddenly Durant goes down, Clay goes down, and that that sort of domino effect, I mean, they were fortunate for that never to happen. But an instance where it could have, like Pippen's back going out in game six, Jordan scored half the team's points at the age of 35. Like that's 
something that other guys just don't have that mental makeup. It felt like, and they, I thought that the doc showed that where it was like, look, he had absolutely nothing left. He's clearly gassed on the sidelines. He's clearly gassed like at all points of the game. And he's like, you know, that last 42 seconds, he's like, I got to take over. And I think part of the reason we glorify him may be because the results allow us to, but you see stuff like that on camera and you're like, wow, that's going to the next gear. Um, all right. So AP, what'd you think about, um, let's, I want to talk about post 1998 title, right? Which is they have a chance to run it back. There's a lot of different conversations throughout the documentary. And this is why it was the last dance that this was going to be the end that Krauss wanted Phil out. What'd you think about Reinsdorf coming to Phil and saying, look, I want you back. We'll figure out a made a way, a way to make it work. And for, for, uh, you know, Phil to say no. Well, I feel like Kraus, first off, um, he's look he's been looked at as the villain in this whole thing. And after looking at this, after watching this documentary, I actually kind of feel like Reinsdorf is the true villain. Um, Kraus, you know, early on, I guess right after the 97 season, he told Phil, you know, you could win every single game coming back next season. And that's I feel like where Reinsdorf should have stepped in. I mean, yeah, to a certain degree, you got to trust your uh, your manager, um, yeah, your general manager. Where you know Kraus built this team, um, but when it comes to a point where you know he, he's going to get rid of the coach that's won him five championships at this point, going on six, and then Jordan coming out and saying, "I'm not playing for anyone other than Phil," you got to look at that and say something's wrong. Um, and that's where Reinsdorf should have stepped in early, like a lot earlier than after winning the 98 championship. See what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Karthik, what do you think about that? Because it's like Kraus was the one who was taking that hard line on no fill. Reinsdorf let him go. Should he have supplanted that view earlier on to be like, what are we talking about? This is the greatest coach of all time. I mean, and, and do you think it ended up being kind of Phil's choice to break it all up? Like when he had that option to come back? It's, I mean, it's Reinsdorf's fault. I totally agree with Akhil. Like at the end of the day, if you're an owner, you have to step in and, and make those those decisions. Uh, and I don't think you can, Kraus, obviously, the way he handled the Phil situation was not the right way to do it. But in terms of everything else, Reinsdorf could have easily come in and, I mean, put it this way. If you asked all the fans what they'd want to do, 100% of them would say keep Jordan. If you asked the rest of the teams what the Bulls should do or what they would do if they're in the Bulls situation, 100% of them would keep Michael Jordan. So it's it's a no-brainer decision that the, has to come. If, if Kraus isn't falling in line with that, the owner needs to step in and make that move. And owners do that all the time. Sometimes they make the wrong decisions, but... This is one of those instances where I don't like how the documentary Reinsdorf plays dumb. And he, he says does. he, you know, he plays dumb and he he puts the blame on Kraus. And it's easy when Kraus is not there to defend himself. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate because ultimately I think he's the villain in all this. And guess what? Kraus um, also kind of didn't help with the rebuild. But Reinsdorf has still been owning the team since then. And they haven't really improved either. So he's just as culpable 
the Phil Jackson one is interesting. I, you know, Phil Jackson also is a headstrong coach. And when he decided he's not going to come back, I don't know if there was any way to bring him back yeah, or mend that relationship. But this could have been, I think, Ryan Surf could have stepped in in 97 or much earlier to, to make sure that this didn't come down to that. Yeah, it, you know, we talked about how could you, forgetting about the ego play, right, between, you know, Kraus or Phil or Jordan, how could you not see the business opportunity as an owner who is, forget his basketball knowledge. A lot of these owners don't know a lot about the sports, the teams they own, at least, you know, to some degree, because that's not how they made their money. Like there are certain guys like Mark Cuban, who's extremely invested in all those types of things. And there's certain guys like the late great Abe Poland, who doesn't know fucking anything. And it was just like, yeah, Gilbert Arenas will bring us a title, give him a hundred million. Right. So how could Reinsdorf at the very least not see the money that was being printed at the United Center year after year? He literally had the most famous athlete in history who wanted to stay. Um, And you know, at the very least, you got to be like, look, Jordan needs Phil. He won't come back. I need Jordan. Get them both. For everyone else, we can figure out a decision, right? Jordan never said he wouldn't play in Chicago without Pippen. Maybe that would have been a stipulation as well. Or maybe they could have figured out a trade, sign and trade that was a little bit you know, more palpable to give him some support. Um, same thing with Rodman. Maybe Jordan recognized Rodman was at the end of the line and he really couldn't provide any more support. So it's like, that's fine. I don't need Rodman. We can go find another defensive rebounding presence. But he said very clearly, I won't play in Chicago without Phil. And to not just understand that right away and get rid of all this unnecessary drama. um, It's crazy. And I thought it was interesting that he's still thinking about how they could have gotten seven. So let me ask you this, Akil, do you think if that team comes back, they're winning their seventh title in 99. Lockout, shortened seed season. Remember, the eight-seed Knicks made it all the way to the finals that year. So it was a bit of a weird time. Yeah. Um, I really do think it depends on whether Steve Kerr was going to play with the Bulls again or whether he was going to jump to the Spurs with that chance. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I mean, the part of that. I was like, Steve Kerr, the and everything. <laughs> Steve Kerr was part of that um, championship-winning Spurs team. Yeah, he's got four um, feet. Yeah, which is which is awesome for him. But um, uh, I do. I mean, all jokes aside, I do think depth would have been big um, because you you do have hungry and young teams out there. Um, you got the Pacers. Um, well, I don't know how young they were at that time, but um, you got the Knicks and Pacers in the East. Um, you know, Bulls Knicks rivalry. Um, Knicks, I think, made it to the finals at one point. Is yeah, that right? That year. That year. That year against the Spurs. Um, and then you got the Spurs in the West with, with Tim, uh, rookie Tim, right? No, he was in his second year. So I think I think that's the thing, right? Is like, would they have had an answer for Duncan and Robinson? Um, they had played a young Shaq earlier in the, his career, and we know that the, the Magic had beaten them in 95, and then they came back and swept them in 96. I'd be interested to see how what their answer was for the Twin Towers because they didn't really have a great big man who could match up. Even Rodman was more of a tweener. And that was also the the lockout season, if I 
recall correctly. They, they only played 60 games yeah. that year. 50, yeah, 50 games. They started in all the way in January. So an old team would have had, you know, a good amount of time to rest. No all-star break, though. You got yeah. to factor that in. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, you know how Jordan is. He's always looking for, for ways to motivate himself and the team. And I'm sure he would have figured out a way to at least come out of the East. Um, but I feel like that young, hungry Spurs team uh, could have possibly given some matchup issues. Yeah. But, I, you know, like yeah. Jordan and the Bulls would have come through. What do you think, Karthik? Yeah, I think the lockout benefits them totally. An old team like that, after coming off three straight uh, titles, you need that extra time. So I think they would actually, regardless of what exactly happens to that roster, if they kept the core intact, I think they could get to the finals. How they? I don't know if they'd be able to beat the Spurs. I, I do think that matchup problem. Um, it, I mean, Shaq, I get that they swept the the Orlando Shaq team, but now you've got Duncan and Robinson. It forces you to play a little differently. I I don't know if they would win, but you also can't discount Jordan. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I I would I think it worked out in their favor that they ended at six. Oh, totally. Because they would have maybe gone to the finals. They would have lost and then you know it breaks up after that so ultimately for the narrative for the jordan narrative it's better that it ended in 96 98 um although we all would have liked it if we saw them run it back one more year as much of a jordan supporter as i am i would i'm gonna go on record and say they would not have won in 99 um given that the eight seed made to the finals i think they could have probably done that like jordan would have been able to figure that out I think they lose to that San Antonio team. And I know they had an incredible amount of veteran experience. They obviously had a ton of championship pedigree, top to bottom. And the Spurs had really not been there before. Even Robinson at that stage of his career was still looking for his first finals appearance, right? Duncan's in year two, and Duncan was phenomenal from the second he walked into the league. But it's still a different experience to be in the finals. We've heard that time in and time out. I just think, you know... They were so dominant up front and they still had good role players and Mario Ellie and Sean Elliott, Avery Johnson. Um, No one that could really stop Jordan per se. I mean, nobody could stop Jordan, but I think they would have been a little bit younger, a little bit more athletic. And while the 50 game, uh, the 50 game season and the long off season helps. If you go look at some of the ex bulls players like Pippen did not play well in Houston Dennis Rodman was terrible. I think he went to either L.A. or Dallas. He was terrible in both places. Um, Kerr was on San Antonio, so he, he wasn't like a massive player, role player. But a lot of those guys didn't actually play that well. So I don't know what the expectation is that Scotty still has it for one more season and Rodman can still keep it together. Like Rodman never played a meaningful game after that 98 title. And he was critical to that Bulls team. Um you look at Ron Harper, he's already on his last legs with his knees. Um, you know, Kukoc wouldn't have had the bigger role that he did, so he's still kind of muted. I, I don't know that that team wins, and I don't think they beat San Antonio, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think they would either. Um, it's the, the East just happened to be relatively weak enough that I don't think they'd have a problem getting to the finals. Yeah. But... Uh, 
But it's one of those we'll never know, right? <laughs> yeah. They weren't given a chance. And, and I think every team needs to get that chance. Like, you look at in more recent history, you look at the Miami Heat. Um, I mean, they weren't that old, but 2014, the wheels started falling off a little bit. And fine, yeah. they run their course, they lost. The Warriors, the wheels started, uh, you know, the they were still dominant, but the injuries finally started hitting. Kevin Durant, uh, all that drama. And then you it's, it's a time to break up. Every other – and you have all these examples in NBA history, like the Pistons, all these other Lakers. Yep. At some point, the, the gas just runs out. But with the Bulls, it just felt like it's so disappointing to not even get to see that play out because you don't know. What if they went and won seventh? What if they won eight? Like It's just impossible to know even though we can speculate all we want. Yeah, I mean, what would have been really, really fun to watch and they just missed each other was like that Shaq Kobe Lakers team playing the Jordan Bulls. Um, you know, by the time that even if Jordan was there in 99 and 2000, like he would have been pretty washed, like almost a version that we saw in D.C. And at that point, you know, there's really no chance against the, the Lakers. But if if those two eras had somewhat, you know, been a little bit more overlapped, that would have been a really, really fun um, version. We saw a little bit of it with like the Shaq Penny magic, but Shaq's a different player than he was in LA. And obviously, you know, Penny was great, but he's no Kobe Bryant. So somehow we barely missed Bulls Lakers and we also barely missed Lakers and Cavs, right? Yeah. With LeBron. Yeah. A couple, <laughs> couple amazing matchups that, you know, if they well, took that's... place would have. Yeah, the Cavs-Lakers is even crazier because LeBron, or at least Kobe-LeBron, let's call it, because LeBron made the finals before Kobe's second two championships. So he was clearly, like, in a position to play at that era. And, you know, just, they, I think they made nine straight finals combined or something like that. Of No, there's a 19-year stretch where 16 of them finals had Kobe or LeBron, and none of them overlapped. Damn. It was, uh, yeah, starting 2000 to 2019. Yeah, so I guess that Pistons year was the was, was LeBron's rookie year, right? That yeah. Lakers-Pistons final. So he wasn't ready. <laughs> Him, Ricky Davis, and Carlos Boozer weren't quite making the finals <laughs> run. But um, all right. Okay, so let's move on to – we're going to do a last dance full recap here. Uh, we've milked this thing for about 10 hours of programming, just like the actual doc itself. Um, and so we're going to go through a few uh, – I don't know if they're awards or categories or something. So we'll start uh, Karthik, Akhil, and then I'll wrap it up. All right. So the first one is your favorite episode of the 10. I would say it's either six or seven. Um, I really liked the episodes that weren't about basketball that kind of focused in that weird time around the retirement. um, Some of the motivations behind the retirement, him coming back and episode seven, especially just his competitive nature. And I think that's the episode, if I'm not mistaken, where they delve into the teammate fights to a certain extent um, to some of those. The, the downside of being so competitive and then Jordan kind of in his voice and then that really powerful moment at the end where he's tearing up and they cut the, the episode mm-hmm. right there. Um, I thought that was the greatest part because ultimately the documentary, it's great to see the basketball highlights and to relive all those pieces. But 
what I found the most valuable in the documentary overall was the psyche of Jordan and hearing other people talk about that and how it was perceived at the time. And so to me, it's it's that two episode stretch of six and seven that I found the most interesting. And I still think they went easy on him. Like I this doc was not as they, they try to make it seem like, oh, no, we're going to show you the real Jordan. We're going to show all the, the negative aspects of his um, mm-hmm. personality. I don't think they went hard enough on that, but I thought they did at least a good job of in those episodes showing what it costs him from a mental standpoint, from his teammates and the way they perceive him standpoint all around. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, You know, where you you get to see how emotional Jordan really got um, talking about his competitive nature. Um, I did really like episode seven, but for me, the whole purpose of the last dance was to see all that unreleased footage. Um, and, you know, they didn't show or the episode where they showed the most was, of course, the last episode, episode 10. Um, I think it was, it was mainly dealing with, you know, the last, the uh, you know, uh, game six, of course, but seeing highlights from a different angle and you know seeing the shot being taken from a different angle and seeing the post-game celebrations i never got a chance to see those i thought that was pretty cool pretty special um so i would say you know episode 10 i i really thought they uh wrapped it up very you know in a very cool way um so yeah episode 10 i would say for myself it is funny how that game six footage, because it was film, was basically like better quality than we have today. Oh, uh, it was amazing. I was yeah. like, how the, what the hell is going on right now? With Like, why does this look better than my current TV? Um, yeah, the footage is really cool. I think there's been, a, they didn't show as much. Karthik and I talked about this previously. They did not show as much as we would have thought, given the way the documentary was marketed. Um but, you know, I think I think it was they had to tell the full story and they were just like, look, there's 10 hours. There's a lot of different threads going on. And so how do we make this complete while still you know, giving the proper time to, to each? So I thought, you know, the ones you mentioned. So for me, six and seven were definitely up there to go a little bit different route. I thought five was also really cool. Um, this was the one that focused on the dream team, which I'm always I've always been mesmerized by since a little kid. And then also just like turning from a basketball star to a global icon and what that transformation looks like, right? It doesn't happen to most. Um, there's a handful of athletes that, you know, have really experienced that. You look at the NFL, the best players in the NFL don't come close to, in terms of like the amount of exposure they get. And that's a league that's three times as big as the NBA. And it's just, you know, in American sports over the last 50 years, there's probably five or six people who have ever gotten to that height um and to see how that transformation happened what he's you know there's a downside which is like him sitting in his hotel room being like i can't go anywhere i can't do anything there are the commercials the just adulation which is also really cool and frankly probably pretty flattering right and trying to balance all that while still being a tireless worker still actually having to go on the court and produce um was cool to see. I think one of the early episodes he had said, look, if I average three points and two rebounds, like everybody's going away. There's no Nike, there's no Gatorade. And you see a lot of players get swayed by like, what's my brand mean? 
versus like, how do I perform the best in this role such that my brand is magnified? And I think Jordan perfected that. Kobe's perfected that. You know, LeBron has more prominent off-court interests, but he's always been the hardest worker on it. You know, like he's always still putting the time. And so that's where some of the old heads, so to speak, get annoyed at this generation who are you know more worried about Instagram fits than being like, I need to go practice because if I don't fucking make my jump shot, nobody cares what I look like walking into the tunnel. Um, and so I thought that balance was cool. All right. Next up. So this is what was your favorite montage? There's a lot of cool like little strings of whether it's an interview, whether it's video footage. What was your favorite montage of the episode of the the doc? That one's hard. Um, I liked. I personally liked the uh, the one with the security guard. Uh, I forgot his name. The. The yeah, one with the gamblers. Yeah, playing quarters. Playing quarters. That was just like this one. That was like one of the coolest back behind the scenes footage, I think, in in the episode. Because it's a very just candid moment. It reveals a lot about Jordan's personality. Like in the most meaningless kind of game, he's super competitive. You can tell he's upset when he loses. Like you can see it just how it, it bugs him so much to lose that yeah. stupid game. And um, that, I mean, like moments like that, that were even not even related to basketball. I really like that those. Um, so that would probably be my favorite. Yeah, I thought that segment was really cool. Um, you know, once again, it shows how competitive Jordan is in pretty much anything uh, basketball related or not. But um, I actually really enjoyed the Dennis Rodman segment where he asked to take 48 hours of leave. <laughs> and I think the next, I think literally the next clip you see him is drinking a Miller Lite and then just jetting off on a motorcycle. Um, I was like, just think, I was just trying to relate that to how basketball is today. I mean, if we saw anything like that today, I mean, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just unheard of. Um, and Carmen Electra, you know, just her talking about, Vegas and then I thought one of the coolest parts was how like Jordan literally had to go knock on their door um Carmen Electra hides in the background and Jordan's like you know get your ass over to practice um so I I really enjoyed the Dennis Rodman segments and behind the scenes for that can you I I can't even believe that they had cameras with him in Vegas (laughs) I honestly, I honestly, God cannot believe that that was sanctioned and commissioned and we haven't seen all of that footage. That would be like the hangover, the reel at the end of the hangover, like the picture reel during the credits. Yeah, I'm just picturing that's the that's the videographer's footage on his on his camera. Um, yeah, the security guard one's interesting, right? Because it's like he doesn't get to be real around a lot of people, nor does yeah. he get to just like relax and just like not worry about every single thing. And those are like the three friends he has basically hanging out in the back room of the United Center. Um, So it was cool to see that. I think for me, I'm actually going to go with like game footage. I thought the way they did the 86 uh, playoff game versus Celtics when he goes for 63 Uh in a triple overtime loss in a series, they got swept. And I know they like brushed over all these like minor (laughs) details about not advancing that series. But just the I think they had it to an LL Cool J song. It's like you really start to see an evolution um, 
from, okay, this is this high-flying kid who's just going to try to dunk on any, everyone. He's got great stats, but can he win? To I'm going for a playoff record against what a lot of people consider the greatest team of all time, or at least a top-five team of all time, and nobody can check me. Um, and his team sucked, right, in 80, 84, 85, 86. Those first couple of years were just not good teams. I mean, they didn't get Pippen and, and Horace Grant till 87. And so um, – I think it was really cool to see uh, that montage and like, all right, the titles may come, the awards may come, but this dude's arrived. And that was that moment, I think. All right. So Jordan was probably the best interviewee. One of the best reasons we of this doc was we got to see a candid version of him on film um, giving these interviews. So who was your favorite interviewee besides Jordan? I'm gonna go with John Paxson. He was good. He was good. Now, I the re, here's why I like John Paxson, uh, and Steve Kerr is good too. But I think that one's a little more obvious. Yeah. What I liked about the John Paxson perspective was he was very level-headed. Um, he had no real, like Rodman. Obviously, is just very eccentric. Pippen, uh, he had his own issues and things like that. But Paxson was just one of those guys. He's a decent player, along for the ride. Yeah, he had the big shot. And I just liked he had a very measured perspective on everything when it came mm-hmm. to Jordan, when it came to just his competitiveness, when it came to the team. And I, I don't know, I really just appreciated his his uh, input as someone who's not the one of the top four, top three or four players on the team. Mm-hmm. And Kerr, who's now like, I think a lot of people have talked about oh, why does Kerr get so much attention for being a relatively minor role player in the grand scheme of things. But Paxson, to me, I thought... Um, provided some pretty good insight. And I'm trying to remember what are some of the things he said, but I remember those first couple episodes that featured him more. Um, yeah. I really liked what, what he talked about. And even in the later episodes when he was talking about telling Kerr how to play with Jordan yeah, um, and how to be that mentor. And I think in the early episodes when he talked about just like how Jordan had to evolve in the triangle and all those types of things, I thought was exactly. It's like, look, that he didn't win until they figured that out. That's the reality. So cool. Yeah, I definitely thought um, Paxson was cool. Uh, I'm going to give a pretty popular answer, though. Uh, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. But, you know, it was just cool to see um, basically how much respect Kobe had for him. Um, and I think one specific quote was basically, I think he just said, what you get from me is him. Um, and it just kind of shows that, you know, all the footwork – all the fadeaways, the defense, everything that Kobe that we you know that we know Kobe for it it derived from Jordan. Um, and did Co- you know? You could say it, people used to say Jordan was like Dr. J, like the hip hop version of Dr. J. You could make the argument that Kobe kind of like was a little bit more hip hoppy than than yeah. Jordan, even like a little bit more creative at times. Um, and, you know, just a little, uh, I don't know how, I don't know what the best terminology here is, but it, it was just cool to see what Kobe did based off of what he saw from Jordan and, and just the amount of respect that Kobe showed. Um, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that footage I had never seen in the locker room in 98 All-Star game where he's like that little Laker boy is going to go take over. And I, I don't know about you guys. I didn't realize they were this tight until... 
Jordan spoke at Kobe's funeral and he was basically like, you know, they had some people speaking um, for Gigi and they had some people speaking for Kobe. And he was probably one of like four or five people total that spoke. And I was like, I didn't realize they were this close. So and the doc validated that, right? Where he said, you don't get five championships, like like he said. So um, I think for me, I actually really liked, um, there's one particular quote from BJ Armstrong. First of all, he looked so young and just kind of fresh and just like clean. And like the whole time I was just like, how does this dude looking like this? He's got a baby face. He got a baby face. Yeah, totally. I don't think he's aged one year. No. Meanwhile, Jordan's like bloodshot eyes. He's just slinging whiskey next to him. He's like, <laughs> you're like, I think BJ Armstrong is the goat. Um, so the BJ quote that really stuck with me where he was like in nine by 92, Jordan wasn't playing basketball anymore. He was just winning. Um, and I don't even know if that comment makes sense, but in my head, I'm like, this is some higher power that we just can't understand where it's like, he's moving chess pieces around, right? Like it doesn't matter that it's basketball. He's just like, it's almost, I mean, this is going to sound, I'm really just almost like putting him on like the pedestal of like God himself. But like in the matrix, when Neo starts to see everything in code and he's just like, whoa, I can just crush these agents. Like I'm no longer, I'm no longer like playing by the same rules. I think that's what happened to Jordan in that 92 season. <laughs> and that's how BJ Armstrong put it. <laughs> um all right what was your, you kind of already touched on this a little bit but what was your favorite behind the scenes footage i think i liked uh i mean i'm, I'm gonna go non-basketball again i like the speaking of the security guards like gus let his relationship with lebron uh, not LeBron, with jordan <laughs> <laughs> lebron I, would never have that kind of relationship with a security guard yeah, I, I like that a lot because it showed a human side to Jordan that up until that episode, uh, you see very little of. Uh, when I say human, I mean, I mean, Gus Lett said that his wife, well, when he, um, what was that story about his wife? Yeah. Jordan reached out. Yeah, because he, he, he could was tell because when, when he got feeling cancer. sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he could tell that Gus feeling sick. So I like that story. I liked some of that just, you know, Gus kind of shepherding him around everywhere. Once again, nothing spectacular. I, there's a lot of better footage to choose from, but I just I I like seeing the human side to Jordan a little bit. For sure. Um, we talked about security guards. We talked about Rodman. A couple of my favorite scenes, but there was this one scene, and it was a specific quote. Um, I don't know if anyone caught this, but it gave me goosebumps when I saw it. They're like in a pregame huddle, like they just announced the starting lineups. They're about to say, you know, one, two, three bulls. And they put their hands in the middle and Jordan goes, I think this is right before the 98 playoffs. Or, or this is like the like game one of round one of the playoffs. And Jordan goes, starts with hard work, ends with champagne. Damn. And I was just like, wow, like, like yeah. that that just gave me goose I mean I have goosebumps right now just thinking about that. Like <laughs> he knows I mean he knows where like what the end goal is. And it's it's kinda like Kobe, you know, Kobe and Jordan, they're same, you know, same beast, but I think both of them had that mentality. It's championship or bust. And that quote right there was you know, it it defined that. Yeah. That's sick. 
I don't remember that specifically. I remember those like scenes. I don't remember. I didn't catch that quote, um, but that's nice. I think mine is um, it's kind of a subdued one. But when Jerry Seinfeld was in the locker room randomly <laughs> and like Phil could not be more impressed, he just not be less impressed. Sorry, he just kind of like stared at him. It was like and then Jordan was like, Phil said, you got to go. And then right before he leaves, he's like, that play is not going to work. And it was very typical Jerry Seinfeld, very typical 90s moment, right? Because these are the two icons of the 90s. And the whole thing, it was extremely 90s in a lot of different ways, uh, including thinking about Carmen Electra for the first time in 20 years. But um, but uh, so that was a fun scene to me, I think. And, you know, even that one in the Leo scene after he won the title, it's like, Jordan was like almost being looked up to by the most mega stars of Hollywood, you know? So, uh, that was pretty cool. All right. What is, you know, we're all self-proclaimed basketball gurus to say the least, but what was the one thing that stood out to you that you didn't know until you watched this documentary that you learned from it? So this one was, um, the one I didn't know specifically, and I talked about this in one of the previous episodes, was just the nature around Jordan's first retirement. Um, and he mentioned that he was thinking about it, entering into the dream team, the 92 Olympics. He was already thinking about retiring the following season. Yeah. Which to me, I would always associate the retirement with his father's death and after winning the third title. But very interesting to see that he already was, and he told one of his teammates, I forgot who it was, um, that that was on his mind. And so to me, and then we talked about this a lot in a previous episode, how it was really surprising for someone who's that competitive and it's only still pretty early into his career. He was ready to hang it up. Uh, and so that, that I had no idea he was even considering. Yeah. I didn't know um, anything either about retiring, basically thinking about a whole season in advance. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that Coming off that ankle injury in 86, I mean, I knew he was on a minute's restriction, but I didn't know about that last game going into the playoffs where it was like a must-win situation for them in order to make it to the playoffs. And I thought it was <laughs> crazy how, I mean, it's a must-win situation, and he's, he's to the point where he's played his max minutes, and the coach is forced to sit him in the final seconds of the game and somehow they sneak away with a win, they get to the playoffs. And I mean, if they lose that game, there's no 63 point performance mm -hmm. against the Celtics. And that record is never set. So um, I just didn't know about that entire situation going into the playoffs. The only thing I know about 86, I mean, this is three years before I was born. The only thing I know about 86 is that 63 point performance pretty much. And right. You know, so, I yeah. thought that was pretty cool. Those are both actually I was gonna say the retirement thing, and then when you said that, I was like, all right, I want to say the broken foot thing, because I didn't know either of those things. Um <laughs> so you know who hit that shot, you remember it was John Paxson. That's where he's getting his shine. Um, I think for me, I didn't realize Jordan came back in '95. I thought the only times he played, he won titles. Um no, no I'm just kidding. It's a piss card. <laughs> um I think what I didn't realize is that um, I had not remembered that they lost to the Pistons three straight seasons. 
and that I, I kind of thought he got over that mountain earlier than he did. Like, I know he lost him a couple of times, but I thought it was just like, all right, whatever. Jordan rules getting beaten up and then he's going to take over. And you go back and look and Isaiah Thomas has more wins than him head to head in the playoffs and in the regular season. Right. They won three out of four series. Now, after Jordan won, they never came back. But I always thought that like Jordan, they just like lost to someone else in the playoffs. I never really realized that they played him other than in 1990 with the migraine uh, game. And so it was interesting how that was portrayed because I think they gave the Pistons their proper due, but they also sort of whisked them away a little bit where it was like, no, these guys were kind of, nobody's had as much success against Michael Jordan as Isaiah Thomas. And I think that can't be understated. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, you forget just how, how much you had to overcome, right? I think in today's NBA, you lose to a team a couple of times and you're already looking for greener pastures. Um, but to lose three times and finally conquer them, I think is was big. I do want to go back to this minute restriction story because I love that story when I heard it. Yeah. But this is one of the issues I had with the documentary with them embellishing and playing fast and loose with the details because the way they tell the minute restriction story is that it was a 14-minute restriction, seven minutes per half, right? And then that game against Indiana where they Paxson hits the shot, they he played right up to that 14-minute mark until he couldn't play the last possession. You go back, go back on basketball reference. After his ankle injury, he played two games under that minute restriction. They started ramping him up from then. And in that Indiana game, he played 28 minutes not the 14 they're talking about. And then it, that shot wasn't How's good. Get them into the playoffs. He played four more games after that where they had to go three out of four to get into the playoffs. So, and and I didn't believe it either. Then I went back and looked at basketball reference. I and hate you. He, so, <laughs> and the documentary does this a little bit. Like they, every now and then they'll, they'll kind of embellish a little bit. And once I found that out, I was like, okay, it's a great story, but 28 minutes compared to 14 minutes is it's twice as much. So why was he so insistent on 15 seconds then? That's what I don't get. Well, why were the Bulls not playing for 15 seconds? That blows my mind. No, no, that's what Whether I mean. That's what minutes. I mean. Why was yeah. the coach like, oh, he's going to get fired if he puts him in for 15? Damn, he's right. They played. They played actually uh, five more games after five. that. <laughs> <laughs> and they only went three and two in them. They felt like they were no, like the next four. They had to go. Yeah, they, I don't know what exactly the the things were, but <laughs> so damn. AP, what do you think about that now? Not the goat, maybe moving down the rankings <laughs> when it comes to knowing about Jordan. But <laughs> I actually found out something pretty crazy about, and they didn't talk about this at all. I was pretty shocked. There, there was another uh, instance in the 97 finals where Jordan, not only Jordan, but the entire team actually wasn't feeling too well. And this was actually game four. Um, I just found out about this story where uh, the Bulls team assistant mistakenly replaced Gatorade with something called Gator Load, which was <laughs> a... <laughs> which is a heavy drink used for building carbs. And at the time, uh, the trainer, Chip, his name was Chip Schaefer, he said it was like eating baked potatoes. 
And if you watch that game, I mean, the Bulls end up losing that game, but a lot of the Bulls players during the game were complaining of stomach aches or like stomach cramps. Um, and Jordan, at even at one point, he even asked to sit out for a brief amount of time. Um, something, you know, obviously that Jordan would not ever do in especially a finals game. But I guess these cramps were so bad that even even the great Michael Jordan had to sit out for a little bit. I actually went back a little, a little bit earlier today to try to find that game to see at what point did he sit out. But yeah. I just watched the final minutes. It wasn't the final minutes. So, you know, at least give him credit for that. He played through it. It must have been sometime, you know, in the first half or early in the second half. But how crazy is that story? That's actually a great story. I wish they had covered it. I feel like I've been drinking Gator Load the <laughs> you look like it too. No, <laughs> the video froze for a second. I was like, I didn't think yeah. that joke sucked like that much, but I didn't hear that the end of the joke either. Yeah, we missed it. Oh, I said I feel like I've been drinking Gator Load for the last ten weeks. <laughs> I right, thought you. I, so... I, I filled in the blanks myself. I thought you were going to say like, the last five years, six years, but. <laughs> Kinder, dude. No, appreciate, appreciate it. Um, all right. Wait, wait. Can we, Here's uh, the, on the yeah. note of the sickness uh, or players falling sick, can we talk about the flu game? Because you did have it. And I think that was one of the things we, we yeah, didn't cover for on episode it. nine, ten. All right. Seven. So you don't believe this. You don't believe it. First of all, apparently they, the, the delivery team that went there, the five guys that went there were only two. So another example of, of details just getting kind of created. How do you of, know? What are you like <laughs> fucking cousins with them? Like, how do you Were know? Were you one of them? Five? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like 10-year-old me or 9-year-old me just ready to deliver this poison pizza to Michael Jordan. Um, first, I think, I don't know if it's a flu. I, it can't be a hangover. I know a lot of people like to call it the hangover game because can't be a hangover. it's just a hangover is never like it can't be that bad unless he was i don't know he took like 20 drinks or 25 drinks the night before which would make it no can sense be that bad for us but we're like slow fat indian dudes they can't be that bad for michael <laughs> jordan who regularly partied yeah. and then dropped 40 but i also don't think it's the pizza i think the answer is somewhere in between um where it, it's not being completely he's not being completely truthful and it's very convenient. He's like, I ate the whole pizza. No one touched the pizza. It was just me. So it's like, okay, clearly, because if he says he shared the pizza and no one else got sick, it couldn't be food poisoning. So yeah, very convenient narrative that was spun there. I, I'm not convinced it was a hangover, but it definitely wasn't food poisoning to me or the flu. So I just I just read um, something else about how Jordan actually spit on that pizza so so that no one else eats it. I don't know how true that is, but <laughs> I feel <laughs> I feel like it's something Why would he do would that? Do. Like he didn't want to share because he was that hungry? I Oh, you know what it was? Um, Tim Grover, his trainer, who he was with and whoever else he was with, they ended up eating beforehand and didn't like ask Jordan to eat with them or something. And I think Jordan took it personally like he takes everything. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Grover not being hungry was a personal slight to <laughs> So, Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I agree it's not a hangover. It just can't be. 
But let's say it is a pizza. You know how a lot of people on Twitter were like, how do these people know it's Michael Jordan's pizza? Specifically, it's not like he's calling being like, hey, this is Michael Jordan, NBA superstar. Yeah. I'd like to order a pizza. <laughs> this is 1998 in Salt Lake City or 1997. Excuse me. There's not a lot going on. And people know what hotel the away team is staying in. Yeah. Like you can t- you know which hotels like I know which hotels in Chicago that the, the road teams come in because there's yeah. only like two or three that they do. And so if it's 11 p.m. and you're the only show in town that's open and this tea, that they're ordering this pizza, you could probably put two and two together. That's all to say that this is like an intentional act of poisoning, which is really crazy. Couldn't it just be like bad meat or like bad cheese or something? Like, is it so absurd that he gets food poisoning because the pizza, like if, it, if it's a sketchy pizza place that's open this late, there's a not a zero, there's a non-zero chance that they're, you know, not necessarily meeting FDA standards here. Possibly, but they're making it sound like the starting five for the Utah Jazz showed up at his door <laughs> with this pizza. I'm like, here, Michael, eat this. Um, I just don't think it was this, you know, intentional thing in this where they poisoned the pizza and then served it up to Michael, right? Maybe he did get food poisoning, fine, but not the way they portrayed it in the doc. Um, but who knows? Well, and, and here's the other funny thing. You know Kobe? Um, you know how Kobe, in 2002, he claimed he had food poisoning in one of the games against the Kings? And he said he had a room service cheeseburger, and he said that the Sacramento, like the hotel staff, poisoned that cheeseburger on purpose. And... Now I'm less inclined to believe that story because it's clearly just he, he idolizes Jordan, clearly just copying something that Jordan's he already a done. Flu game. He needed, he a, needed flu a flu game. He needed a flu game. It makes me even, you know, I believe that even less now. Actually, the ultimate Jordan competitive move is Kobe had the number one food poisoning game. So then they had to come back and tell the real story that this was food poisoning. Exactly. So it overtakes Kobe in the in the rankings. It's to come and rewrite history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Next question is, who do you think got who who has the most to gripe about with the way they were portrayed or covered in this documentary? I'll give a two part answer. I think uh, Kukoc and Pippin. Um, Pippin and I've read a lot of different things about this. People think they were fair to Pippin. I don't think they were that fair to Pippin. Um, granted, he made some mistakes uh, in terms of sitting out, uh, you know, the final uh, play and in terms of sit- taking doing the surgery when he did in 1997 at the start of the season. But, and they talk about how good of a like episode two, how good of a, Pip, a player Pippen was, how much he meant. They wanted his backstory. So it's not like they didn't give him enough coverage. But I, I think they kind of took away the attention in the like as they got deeper into the dock, they took away the attention from Pippen's basketball skills. And they talk less about what he was. I mean, he was such a dominant player when you talk about even between the 94, 98 seasons. And they mentioned that that team still won 55 games. You know, they did pretty well when Jordan retired. But I think they didn't shine enough light on how good Pippen was as a number two and how big of a role he played in them winning six titles. They they started very early on in the doc talking about it. But I think coming out of the entire doc, he's portrayed more negatively than positively in my mind. That's my first part of my answer. I also want to say Kukoc. He didn't, I mean, I think it was a game five in the 98 finals. He dropped 30 points and he'd have a couple of games here and there. He wasn't always consistent where he'd drop, uh, he'd be like a very reliable scoring option for the Bulls. And they don't talk, maybe he didn't want to 
provide that many, you know, many um, sound bites in the interviews, but they don't talk about him much outside of the times where uh, the circumstances of him coming to the team and him just getting destroyed in the Olympics. So I think they could have done a better job portraying uh, Kukoc as well, considering how much he meant to that team offensively. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say Pippen hands down. I mean, articles are coming out about how Pippen and actually even Horace Grant, I was going to mention how they're pretty upset about the documentary and how they were portrayed. Um, Pippen, I mean, I do think to a certain degree he did it to himself, the whole contract situation. I mean, I get it, his backstory and, you know, his I think his brother and his dad were both in a wheelchair and he was just trying to get whatever he could at the time. But and, and and I think even then, Krause told uh, all the players that, you know, I'm not um, restructuring any contracts. So, I mean, he knew what he was getting himself into. Um, I'm not saying that what Krause did was was right, but um, Scotty, at the end of the day, I think he did it to himself. Um, however, he was uh, known as, I think, one of the best teammates in that in that time, 91 through 98, um, you know, better than Jordan. Jordan wasn't, I guess, a, a great teammate per se, but that a lot of Bulls players looked up to Scotty to, you know, if they had any questions, they felt more comfortable around Scotty. And that's something that the the documentary obviously did not portray very well. So I would say Scotty, number one, and then Horace Grant, I mean, that whole snippet about uh, the Jordan rules and who leaked all that information, I mean, honestly, I do believe Horace Grant. He looks pretty uh, innocent in the document. Like, the way he comes off, he, he, he seems innocent. Jordan, who knows? He's probably just trying to make up another story in his head to motivate him himself for something else. Um, but I think, yeah, so Scott, I would say Scotty and Horace are the two that got kind of snubbed. I don't agree with this Scotty piece at all. Like, I need one of you to, like... They covered the contract in a way that was empathetic towards Pippen. Like, he got screwed, even though he did not get screwed. He signed the contract because of family reasons, et cetera, et cetera. The Bulls had a strict no renegotiation policy. Should they have ripped it up? Yes. And they they framed it like that. Like, that's really Scotty's agent fault, if anything. And they still gave him that empathy. And then in terms of the the two things that were negatively, there's actually three things that maybe Scotty does have some credit. There's three things that were negatively covered. There was the migraine, which Jordan basically like said didn't happen. Essentially, he was like, "Yeah, Scotty had a migraine." There was the 1.8 seconds um, that he sat out for, and there was the uh, back surgery, or not the back surgery, was foot surgery that he delayed. Um, but they also gave him a ton of props for playing through excruciating back pain in the playoffs. Jordan said he's the best teammate he's ever had, and you should not speak Michael Jordan without speaking Scottie Pippen. Like, what more of a quote do you want to summarize his entire presence? All of his teammates, even though they covered that 1.8, like guys like Kerr, Kukoc, all came to his defense and were like, look, that's not the guy Scottie was. Bill Cartwright said the same thing. That's not the guy Scottie was. It was very unfortunate. Scotty had a chance to take it back, and he said he would do it again the same way. So how much of this is him just being like, look, I've had ups and downs in my career, and I've been a polarizing figure at times versus the doc manipulated the story? Because at the end of the day, they put him on screen. They told his story. 
they brought us along with him and and showed us his importance to the Bulls dynasty as much as anyone but but Jordan and maybe Phil. Uh, so first to the contract point, I, yeah, it's his fault for the contract. He signed it. Uh, I do want to call bullshit on Reinsdorf saying they asked him, are you sure you're yeah. screwing yourself over? Like that's another example of Reinsdorf just – there's no – why would he ever say that? He would not say that. He'd be like, go ahead. Let's sign it right now. I don't um, think he's playing dumb, though. I think he's actually dumb based on how the rest of his Bulls ownership tenure has gone. He might be. Yeah, he might be. Um, I I just wish that they'd given him a stronger... Maybe the solution is giving him a stronger voice. Because I think they were fair with the... When he sat out, they had his teammates kind of talk about it. They gave him a chance to revisit it. And he said, you know, I'd do it again. Yeah. I think they're fair in a lot of that criticism. I just don't think... they gave him a strong enough voice maybe it's because he's not a great interview like he never said extremely profound things um throughout the doc but i think he had such a unique perspective and a unique role on that team and playing second fiddle to jordan and being as dominant as he was like a top 30 40 player of all time i don't think like for a player that stat of that stature i don't think that was given enough credit and a lot of people what they take away from the stock or they take away those negative pieces. Like, yeah, at the end, they talk about him playing through the back pain. But even that, it was... I don't know, Jordan was like, oh, yeah, Scotty had back pain. Yeah, and he played through it, which is great. But he didn't really, like... They didn't show teammates gushing about it or... I don't know. I, I, I felt like they didn't do enough to really highlight how great Scotty Pippen was. Yeah, maybe so. So my guy was Coach, also, right? Which is, like, he was the fourth best player on that team. Kerr makes for the splashier headlines. He's a great, great interview and a great person with a really interesting story um, and also has current day prominence. Like I have no idea. I can't I don't know where they they fished Tony Kukoc out of, but I haven't heard of him in 10, 15 years. So it made sense why they put Kerr in the spotlight, but Kerr was a role player, right? He would, like he said, he took five shots a game. He actually went on the low post and said it was a little embarrassing that they, the, all the marketing featured him and not Kukoc. And so, yeah, like Kukoc had that 30 point game. He was like 11 of 13 or something like that. Like a couple games before or in 97, he had another big game and they, they sort of just showed, they actually showed none of it. They basically just showed him getting scored on. Um, and, he wasn't a big part of the doc other than the part that was him as an opponent of Jordan and Pippen, which was, you know, yeah. for Croatia uh, in the 92 Olympics. And so, yeah, I didn't love that, I, especially because you had him, right? Um, you had him as an interviewee. You could have easily pivoted and, and put something around that. And um, it, it's not like a huge casualty, uh, but but one that I think was, you know, not was a little upsetting to say the least, but. Then, but All part right. of it is he may just not be that interesting, right? As a as yeah. a director of it, ultimately this is entertainment. As a documentary, he just may not have much insight to have. And yeah, right. they could show him having a couple of good games of what does it really add. So yeah. I get why they didn't do it and why they had Kerr. But for people who didn't watch those Bulls teams and don't really know Tony Kukoc, you come away thinking that he wasn't. He was kind of a bit player, right? Yeah. And he was a lot more than that. Yeah, this isn't planet Earth. Like, there's going to be some spin in the way they designed this doc, right? Like, yeah. Jordan's boys are the two executive producers on it. So, all right. 
Final question. This is quite topical, actually, after the news that was announced today uh, that ESPN just greenlit a nine-part Tom Brady documentary called, uh, was it called Man in the Arena? Something like that. I can't wait. So the question is over under Brady in Bucks footage versus Jordan in Wizards footage, <laughs> which was zero. So, uh, but we'll see. So who else or what else, any team player story, et cetera, of your lifetime or before, do you want to see a similar, you know, 10 part documentary on? So I guess you can't pick Brady anymore if that was your choice. Uh, I mean, the obvious answer is LeBron. That's too obvious. And he's going to get the problem with LeBron is he's going to get a documentary made like the moment he retires. Like, like, and that's the problem with the Brady doc too. Like, What's so great about this Jordan doc is that it came so much later when obviously Jordan's always been at the forefront of our mind, but it's like it's bringing it all back to life. Something that happened 20 years ago, uh, 20 plus years ago, 30 years ago. I'd say in players, LeBron, but I think teams, there are a lot of interesting teams they could cover. The Warriors are a very obvious example, but I'd love to see the Warriors because I think they have a very interesting arc and I'd want to start from back when they drafted Steph and the issues with Steph and in terms of Steph versus Monte and going through that timeline and right. And they had to make some tough decisions. Joe Lacob was booed um, all that, but then they ended up winning. They found a superstar in Steph. They lost, you know, in the finals. So there's that kind of part where they face some adversity. They came back, they won. Then the Kevin Durant drama, like you can cover all of that in a, pretty good documentary and you got great interviewees i think any good documentary you need good interviewees you have steve kerr you have draymond you have kd you have all these personalities who will have very different perspectives so i think i would say that would be the team i'd love to see a a documentary on i think i'm going to switch sports entirely um one of my favorite sports is tennis and um i just i don't know i think it would be pretty cool to see uh like a Federer slash Nadal 10-part documentary. Um, you know, maybe a few episodes covering just Federer, a few covering just Nadal, and then some just talking about the rivalry altogether. Um, I think that would be pretty pretty amazing to see, um, especially if they have, like, you know, unreleased footage and, you know, scenes from, from their practices and all that kind of stuff. But I would say um, that would probably be one um i mean you mentioned lebron of course that'll be fascinating kobe you know and um and then tiger uh i think tiger would be pretty pretty cool to watch as well you know seeing uh all the wins and overcoming all that uh and then winning the masters just this past year um so that's probably my order right there yeah, my initial thought was Tiger because he did have that dip. Like we've talked about this card thing where you need some type of like getting over the mountain type thing. And it happened mm-hmm. so early for Tiger that it didn't really look like there was much uh, hardship. And then 09 happened, of course. So my thing with the Warriors, the problem is their adversity was solved with Kevin fucking Durant. And that's where I'm like, you know... If just feels it just I'm just like okay yeah they didn't get better go beat LeBron they'd signed Kevin Durant and that's where I'm like okay yeah we know you know <laughs> what I mean 
Um, but I think like the personalities, like you say, you brought up a good point, which is like you need to have characters for it to work. If you're listening to people like sounding like they're, you know, watching paint dry, it's not going to like if there's a bunch of Tony Kukoches and Scotty Pippins in the dock. It's not going to work. Um, I mean, rest in peace to Kobe, because the one I did want to see was the Lakers specifically. And the t- starting all the way with the, the free agency recruitment of Shaq, um, he wanted to play in L.A., but Orlando actually didn't want to give him max money or whatever they could give, which is insane in hindsight, especially because he had success in Orlando. But nonetheless, him moving to L.A., them drafting Kobe basically two years later, um, hiring Phil after that Bulls run and just the dynamics there where you have Kobe, Shaq, Phil, but then you also have, you know, Fisher as a character. Rick Fox is a character. Um, you have Robert Ori on those teams. Um He's a seven-time champion, and there's a a lot of random dudes who are on there for titles. Glenn Rice, Mitch Richmond, A.C. Green. Um, There's so many random people whose basketball reference pages I'll be on, and it'll be like, 1X champ. I'm like, oh, which team was that? It was like one of the three Lakers teams. Um, And then the fallout, right? Like, 03, they lose to the Spurs, but 04, they're back. And pretty much seem poised to, to... get title number four and then it falls apart and then they're gone. I mean, O'Neill's traded that off season. So I think that could have made for some good stories. And I'm sure there's going to be some regret now because they've said it. I mean, when Kobe was around and Shaq, they've said they would, they would have won like eight titles if they had just not fought. Um, we know that that's probably not the case. It never works, but I think it could have been a good, good story. That's a good one. That's a really good one too. And yeah. you know, the, the thing you said earlier about, uh, Jordan and how he's kind of bloodshot with a glass of whiskey in his hand. Like, I think that's another thing that made this documentary so great. If you do have one about LeBron or Brady, these guys are so polished, so overly yeah. produced. Like, I'm a Bron fan, right? But obviously, like seeing an interview with LeBron, he's going to be spew, you know, spewing all the cliches, talking in a very rehearsed manner. It's just not the same. And I think that's one of the coolest things about this documentary is that Jordan just is. You never know how he's going to react. He's off the cuff. He's throwing out F-bombs. And, you know, you get his reactions looking at the iPad. And I think that's another thing I really like to his documentary, how raw he is. And I'm just wondering, like, if for some of these other ones, it would be great if you can get athletes just being that raw and that in their own skin. Um, I don't think a lot of the guys we're talking about would be that way. Like Nadal and Federer would be, like, calling everyone Mr. and Madam and then, like, you know, LeBron and Brady for sure. Like I'm thinking Kobe might've, um, Kobe would have to some degree, but there's just not a lot of guys who talk like that anymore. Yeah. Part of, partly is because it's this brand building enterprise, right? Yeah. Um, it's a different time. Yeah. So you need like a Barkley type. Exactly. Yeah. But all right. Any pa- parting words to this documentary, anything else you want to wrap up with? Um, this was an awesome 10, 10 episodes. I think we needed it given the the quarantine, um, given everything going on. But I'm surprised. I mean, they just finished the episode 9 and 10 like a week before it aired. So it's just crazy how much they were able to move up the release schedule. Um, so I loved it. I think universally approved. Um, and though there's some, yeah, you can nitpick here and there, but it's what we wanted. I think it hit. I, I think it hit its mark. It, yeah. it came at a much needed time. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know how they. I mean, it was only 10, 
10 hours of unreleased footage, actually a lot less. I wouldn't be surprised if we're sitting here in 2040 and we're, we're looking at the other, the remaining 490 hours at some point. Um, I'm just saying that's how competitive Jordan is. <laughs> he, he, just, he just wants everybody to know in every generation. That's, that's when the next guy is going to come up and then he's going to have to smack him down. Let's also not forget he greenlit this whole doc when uh, LeBron had his championship parade. So He did. Uh, Windhorse won't let us forget that. <laughs> and neither will you. But he probably did do it because of that. Like, I'm pretty sure. I mean, everything you've seen in the doc, like, that's so believable, right? That he's... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. All right, guys. Akil, thank you for joining us. Uh, appreciate you, the inaugural guest po- three-man pod here. Um, I'm going to go drink some Gator Load for the rest of the night. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, are we going to do, Karthik, are we doing LeBron versus Jordan, the official pod next week? Are we getting one last episode out of this Jordan run that we've been on? Uh, I'm ready for it. You know, I've uh, I've got... I'm armed with plenty to talk about. The stats I'm about to pull out are going to be so crazy. I'm going to make them up like the 1986. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be good. I, I'm excited for that one. Um, I'm fighting an uphill battle because all public sentiment is with Jordan right now. You're dead. You're dead. Um, you know, it's not a good time for the three, six mafia, but <laughs> I like that. Good. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on here. Best of luck with next week. Yeah, you might have Nathan, you know, calling you okay on like Lifeline, you know, trying to get some extra pointers to help him. So just be prepared for that. Akil knows every Indian on the Eastern Seaboard. Our marketing is about to go through the roof. <laughs> be prepared you, for a record number of listeners. <laughs> All right, take care, guys.